Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Hotel Tonight. If you love to score amazing deals at incredible hotels, you'll love Hotel Tonight. Hotel Tonight partners with hotels to help them sell their unsold rooms, helping you find sweet deals at cool, top-rated hotels. Hotel Tonight shows you the best deals at hotels you'll actually want to stay at. No more scrolling through endless lists of choices. Even though their name is Hotel Tonight, they're not just there for last-minute bookings you can book in advance. Perfect for planners and procrastinators alike. Hotel Tonight is perfect for spontaneous weekend getaways, staycations, three-day weekends, road trips, business bookings, and more. And it's so easy to use. You book hotels in just 10 seconds with three taps and a swipe. There's even the HT Perks program where the more you book, the better deals get. As you must have heard... I've been using Hotel Tonight for a long time, man. Hotel Tonight has been holding down the watch for a while, and we appreciate it because I use Hotel Tonight not only to book places where I am going, but to give me hints about where I should go. Um, so I'll look at Hotel Tonight. I'll punch in maybe Santa Monica, Orange County, San Diego, Nevada, wherever I want to go. And then I let Hotel Tonight do the work. I would let it tell me where the cool hotels are, what the deals might be, when the, when the cool times to travel might be. So you can use it in lots of different ways. Get the Hotel Tonight app now to start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels. That's Hotel Tonight, the only booking app you need. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Sorry to Bother You, the new film critics are calling Get Out on Acid. Don't miss this year's most original comedy in select theaters July 6th and everywhere July 13th. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. now. Hello, and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRinger.com, and joining me in the studio, please, Mr. Postman, it's Andy Greenwald! We're doing a special show today, guys, because Chris and I are not... We're not really here. We're not here. Yeah. We we were never really here. Yeah. We're Uh, not in Los Angeles. We're both on (laughs) mission, separate missions in various desert cities. If you're hearing this, it's too late, because we're in the desert. Yeah. If you want, like, hot live content, Come back for Thursday's show. We will talk about sharp objects. We'll talk about succession. We'll yeah. do the back, the next three episodes of Glow. Maybe there's breaking cultural news. I'm sure we'll be able to hit that stuff. But that's not today's show. Today's show, we are going to talk about your questions. You've got mail. Let's start with Andrew Magna, who asks, at this point in 2018, who is firmly wearing the pop culture crown, which is incredibly different from the TV belt. Right. Which we have not awarded in quite a while. Um, probably since Atlanta, I guess. Yeah, it has, certainly hasn't felt like there's been any show that's grabbed hold of us and everybody else. Yeah, right. But in terms of like the pop culture crown, when I read Andrew's question, mm-hmm. I immediately thought of approval rating. And okay. I don't necessarily mean that in terms of like Nielsen ratings or mm-hmm. box office returns, but finding someone to say, I didn't like this or say, finding someone who's less than enthusiastic about it is incredibly hard. Okay. And the only thing in 2018, pop culture-wise, that I can think of that satisfies that is Black Panther. And when I say Black mm-hmm. Panther, I mean the entire endeavor. I mean the, the rollout of the entire project where it was just like, all these people are delightful. The actual film itself, which I rewatched recently and still plays on a small screen. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the part of the movie that I did not like the first time I saw it, which was Michael B. Jordan's performance, I really came around on the second viewing. Uh, the soundtrack kills. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's obviously having like kind of like a second life as it hits iTunes and hits streaming services and people can enjoy it at home. And I think we'll hear about it a lot more in the fall when they make, I would imagine, a pretty significant push for it to be nominated for Best Picture. I so yeah. I, I have like, can you think of anything that's happened in 2018 well, culturally 
as good as Black Panther. I have an, I do have my own answer, but I want to just riff on yours for a second because I think you're in, entirely right. I think it's an inspired choice. And I think part of the reason why I find it so appealing is it actually answers a question I didn't really answer a week or two ago, but really struggled with, which is this seemingly yawning chasm between expectation, anticipation, tweets, and delivery mm-hmm. and actual reality. Yeah, we were talking about that with the Drake record. The Drake we record. About, yeah. And even things like um, Ocean's 8, which I just sort of gave a cursory dismissal to because I saw it and you didn't. But, you know, that seemed like something that was born out of Instagram likes. You know, it's, everyone was so excited. They were squeeing. They wanted to marry this cast of women together. And they made a deeply mediocre movie. Mm-hmm. And did that matter? I, I guess, maybe, to the studio's bottom line. But it did feel like it was something that was existed solely for um, for Soch, in a way. Mm-hmm. Which is not really a smart play for longevity because, as we are reminded constantly in news, both entertainment and political, Twitter is not reality. Yeah, well, uh, it, but it, what you're saying is actually really, really interesting because and I, we talked about this when we, when we mentioned that we had hosted that Atlanta panel, and I don't mean mm-hmm. to be name-dropping here, but one of the most fascinating things that Donald Glover said to us was— My, my pick for the answer for this question. —was that he was competing with Instagram, mm-hmm. was that he was competing with the entire internet and the entire history of television and anything you can do at any moment when you're like— what do I want to do with my free time? Mm-hmm. And part of what drives Atlanta's creative team is to make a show that they know is going to have like moments that capture the imagination. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with uh, Ocean's 8 or any number of movies that had a, like a huge buildup and then kind of a flat reception when they were finally released. Mm-hmm. I think it's just that they're just regular old movies that are being promoted as if a baby is going to jump out of like a cake and rule us all with benevolence and love. Yeah. And like that just isn't, it's just a movie. Yes. Even, I don't think Ocean's Eleven could have stood up to the rollout that you're expected to make for any movie now. But, so let's put up the two pillars then, your answer and my answer, my answer being Donald Glover. Black Panther somehow just cheated the odds and cheated gravity. Because as you said, even the parts of the entire rollout that seemed designed to annoy a professional curmudgeon like myself were utterly charming, utterly delightful. Now, partly was, partly I think it was the fact that many of the stars coming out of that movie were new stars, newly minted stars. Yeah. Not just Michael Jordan and Chadwick Boseman who were ready to go to a next level, but um, Winston Duke, for example, or uh, Letitia Wright who just, you know, appeared fully formed sure. as people we wanted in our lives and in our movies. And then ultimately, yeah, the movie was was good. And then it had the thing that we love most, which is a long tail of cultural conversation, of engagement, of excitement, and passion. I think the flip side of that, I would my answer to this question would be Donald Glover because he just shows this incredible ability to gracefully tap dance across contemporary culture yeah. and stay winning even when one major plank of his 2018 or the first half of his 2018, which is his performance in Solo, kind of stiffed. He has emerged from that fine, I think. Sure. And one of the reasons he's emerged from that fine is because he keeps working and he yeah, keeps moving. Going on. But I but I think that in I think the flip side to what we're talking about um in terms of anticipation and build up is what you alluded to, which is he he uses the element of surprise. No one knew that this is America video was coming. Yeah. And it dominated. I think and, you just have no, to have and, the goods. And no one you have to have the goods, but he but he maybe it's all the same maybe it's all the same thing he delivered the season of Atlanta that was absolutely jaw-dropping and brilliant and he told us nothing about it yeah and he knew he had the goods and it was a confidence 
that is is appealing in a sustaining way. Yeah, I think that the thing that I noticed about Black Panther when I rewatched it is how it worked on three different levels. It worked on the like the initial level of like, man, it's incredibly satisfying to see different people represented in these kinds of movies. Mm-hmm. Then it had a kind of uh, emotional gut punch that I think I knew about the first time, and then really it, the fact that it maintained its uh, its power the second viewing, which is essentially the relationship between. T'Challa and Eric, you know, mm-hmm. and the, the the idea of these sort of, they're not brothers, but, but they're like the idea that they would have these competing visions for our kingdom and one would feel so aggrieved by the other and the other would sort of try to apply his global worldview to an interpersonal relationship. Uh, and just the actual ending of that movie is really, really powerful. Mm-hmm. And then it has this intellectual level about superpowers, quote-unquote, as superpowers in the geopolitical sense. Mm -hmm. And the ideas of isolationism or uh, exceptionalism or whether or not you it's your it's your duty to help those out, out there who need it, or are you only responsible for the people who are within your borders, which only becomes more and more resonant as this year goes on. So I think that that movie is just operating on a couple of different levels that most movies that do get that kind of rollout, that do get that kind of like, only three more days until your life changes. And then you get a movie and you're like, that's that's cool. That was a good movie. Mm-hmm. Or that was a fine movie. That This movie transcended that. So that's why I think we both have our reasons. So Andy's saying Donald Glover and I'm saying Black Panther. Uh, Dick Whitman, shout out to Mad Men, asks, this is a really good question. Recently, a lot of parentheses, dumb people have called for Disney to remake The Last Jedi. <laughs> Not your parentheses. And let's also just, if I just may add a footnote, I don't think a lot of people, I think a guy with a Twitter account uh-huh. who is having like a really good run on Twitter. A subreddit, basically. Yeah, has basically emerged. saying that he has $200 million in investment pending if <laughs> sure. he can get Bob Iger to sign off on allowing to, to remake Last Jedi because it was so disappointing to hardcore Star Wars fans, right. which I disagree with. Uh, while this would never happen, it got me thinking, if given the opportunity, what installment in a popular film franchise, would you redo and what would you do differently? And Dick, I am going to add another restriction to this. I am mm. going to say, like saying, let's remake something that came out last December. I'm going to say we can only remake something that came out in the last five years. Okay. Okay. Do you have yours? Yeah. Okay. Hit me. Man of Steel. It's potentially surprising because people know that I'm not a DC guy, but I do get the appeal of the character of Superman. And I think... If we're making if we're making Ant Man and the Wasp movies, we should be making a decent Superman movie as an export to the world. And not to even be a total cornball about it, but I find the origin story of Superman on any number of levels kind of moving. And I get why people find that character so inspiring. That Superman is, in fact, not just the ultimate immigrant, but the ultimate optimist, and is at heart a deeply hopeful character. And DC and Warner Brothers have mismanaged this character so deeply and perversely that it boggles the mind. Um, I, I get from a financial conservative thinking perspective why you think why Christopher Nolan has done a good job for you on um, the Batman movies. And maybe we even want to talk about that a little bit either this week or another week because of the 10th anniversary of The Dark Knight. Yeah. But he was the one who was sort of handed the reins of the Superman franchise, I think really just I think he got the check. I think he got the check. but To put think, his name in a trailer. And yeah. I think he was given a short list that Warner Brothers wanted to work with anyway. But regardless, he chose Zack Snyder for this. And 
of all the criticisms one can make about Zack Snyder, and I've made many over the podcast, he doesn't do optimistic. He mm-hmm. doesn't do hopeful. And so I think it was rotten from the jump what they were doing here. And, you know, I, I, I wish that the people in charge could take a deep breath, do a hard reset, and give us a different vision. And for my, my dream vision of this is, and I've, I've said it before, I hope people check it out, Grant Morrison, as far as I'm concerned, solved the character in a really real way in this series called All-Star Superman. Um, but here's where my, my argument falters, because I was trying to think of who should be the one to steward this? Mm-hmm. Who brings an atmosphere of hope and oh, optimism yeah. okay. and this, lightness? You were asking me this question before we started recording. Yeah. To cinema or even to TV these days, but uh-huh. also could marshal the resources and the production to push that vision through without it being noted to death. And I don't know. And I was going to ask you, or I did ask you, who's the new Richard Donner? And maybe there isn't one. And that's kind of the problem. Maybe that's partly why this movie isn't getting made. Um, I, I don't, I, you know, if you, you could line up all your faux Spielbergs against the wall, and I don't think I would pick J.J. Abrams to do this. I don't think I would pick Colin Trevorrow to do this. I don't know who to do, who, who, who I would pick. And I'm I wondering mean, if someone comes to mind for the you. Denis Villeneuve who made a rival... Mm-hmm. Is is got that element of hopefulness and beauty, but I yeah. don't know if he has quite the human touch you're looking That's for. That's right. And his movies don't often brim with humor. It's or it, he- it's such an interesting idea, though, because what you got exactly right by suggesting that in Arrival is there is a unspeakable majesty yes. to the idea of something bigger than us, to the gravity of something, and so the idea of an alien wearing a fucking red cape and flying. Yeah, I want it to feel heavy in the sense of um, emotion and power, but then I also want it to be completely uplifting in that I, you know, for me, that's still what I'm missing from comic book movies, which is the thing that the Warner Brothers team, marketing team in the 70s understood when it was, you will believe a man can fly. So I think on some deep level, even though we've seen everything possible and impossible happen on big screen and small in the intervening 40 years, sometimes I still don't believe people can fly. So. Help me out, listeners. Suggest the person. Maybe it's someone who's only done small work. Maybe it's someone who we're not even checking for. But who is that person who could who could pull something like that off in 2018, 2019, 2020? Because I'd love to see it. Yeah, because the only other suggestion I have besides Villeneuve is Jeff Nichols, who did Midnight Special. Yeah. Uh, and I know that he was being offered, or there was rumors that he might do Aquaman at one point. Mm-hmm. But that is a guy who has that Amblin touch that, if you're looking for something like that, I just don't know if that's, I would love to see Jeff Nichols make like five other movies before he gets trapped making a superhero movie. Yeah. Um, but sometimes all it, sometimes it's the hardest thing to do, but if you find the person who has the vision and the chops and just can, can, can vibrate on the right frequency of the moment, like Ryan Coogler did with Black Panther, it is possible. Uh, my pick for what to remake of, from the last five years, a movie to remake would be uh, Alien Covenant which came out in 2017. Good call. Uh, this Not series, Prometheus, Alien Covenant. No, Prometheus, I think, in its own way, while I think it has a lot of detractors and it, it has, you can rightfully criticize that movie, is one of the most fascinating mainstream movie experiments in a really long time. I agree. Uh, it was, it first of all, it had one of the best trailers of all time, I mm-hmm. think. And then Damon Lindelof and a bunch of other people wrote this John script. John Spates. John Spates. That... Really, Scott directed that there is a way to read it as one of like the most profoundly weird spiritual 
you know, inquisitions that you'll see in a sci-fi horror movie ever. Mm -hmm. And that it's basically got this incredible biblical allegory going on. And it's, it's just this fascinating movie. And it did actually leave open this idea of like, well, okay, so we know, and we've talked about like these problems with these movies. Okay. We know where these movies are going to wind up, but in a lot of ways, the alien movies have been so limited and claustrophobic to the spaceships that they're set on or the prison planets that they're set on that we don't really know much about what's happening on the world that created this phenomenon and that how that world is dealing with it. Mm -hmm. And I think that we thought that these new movies were going to do that. Covenant comes along and they completely overcast it where there's just like nine different really good actors competing for like 45 seconds each. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we recently just talked about this with Soldado where you were saying like, I would just do the like, former partners yeah. split apart while a man is being chased across the desert. Because, by the way, that was my pick, but we talked about it right. the other week. This movie, Covenant, should have just been the Amy Simon story. Mm-hmm. Amy Simon gives this incredible, short, spoiler alert, performance in Covenant as this uh, character named Maggie Ferris, who is married to Danny McBride's pilot character, and she's a scientist working on uh, on the on this planet that they go to. But she has the most fun in a weird way. I mean, she has a spectacular character death, but she has the most fun. She is the most realistic character in this movie. And they also have Catherine Waterston and they also have Billy Crudup and they also have Danny McBride and they have two Michael Fassbenders going. So there's all this different stuff happening, but there was so much potential in this movie to continue the weirdness of Prometheus, but also start answering more questions. And instead, I think they kind of just couldn't make up their mind yeah. uh, what they wanted to do with this franchise. And I would be actually surprised if they make a third one um, at this point. Um, but it's a shame because I actually really thought that Covenant could have been aliens to Prometheus, Prometheus's alien. Hmm. All right, next question. We're going to David James who asks, can you guys explain what aspects of Killing Eve you liked and why you thought it was good? I struggled mightily with it, and I'm trying to process those feelings and interrogate whether it is some latent sexism on my part, i.e., e.g., I enjoyed Barry. So this is interesting, because I think this comes up a lot uh, as we start to become more fluent publicly with our own biases Mm -hmm. as a society, or at least being asked to be more fluent with our biases. And then when you have like a television show thing, and Andy and I spent a lot of the spring talking about Barry and Killing Eve as partner shows, as Mm -hmm. sort of shows that were touching on some of the same themes. If your preference was Barry over Killing Eve, you know, the biases that might be inherent in that. And so I think it's thoughtful that this guy is is actually at least saying, like, I'm working through that. Mm -hmm. Um, He said he didn't dislike it. He just didn't like it. And he had high expectations and got annoyed after a few eps. I think that... um, I think that what you have to consider there is tone. And uh, a lot of this material, a lot of it is really, really dependent on the approach that people take. And I think Andy and I were so praising of Phoebe Waller-Bridge. We don't often stop to say, she may be an acquired taste. Uh, And I don't know necessarily what David was reacting to there. Um, he said he had a similar reaction to Fleabag in that he didn't really care for that either, but was interrogating like why. Yeah. But Phoebe Waller-Bridge is like a is like a tough proposition. Well, I think she's very specific, and yeah. I think one of the things that Chris and I look for and respond to is strength of voice because we're looking for things that cut through the clutter. And I've said this fully as a compliment 
that I think her voice is dazzling and rings out like a church bell, and you could un, you could recognize it anywhere. And that is extremely rare for um, certainly for TV writers, um, when a lot of the goal is to sort of mute some of the more extreme tendencies or your quirks down to make it either more palatable or to play well with others, however that may be. Um, look, I, I think there's there's two questions here. One is, yeah, people like different things and people like different approaches to things. And you can look at the same re- the same ingredients and you can prefer one chef's dish more than the other. And I think that it's worth noting that what made Barry and Killing Eve both exceptional was that they took a subject matter that could either be could ra- the, the reaction to it could range from this was sort of boilerplate to this is offensive and appalling and violent and really found something that interested each show in a surprising way. The, the thing that interested each show was surprising yeah. to me, ultimately. Yeah. And for Killing Eve, what it was deeply interested in was these issues of obsession and the relationship between professional women and their role in the larger world. Yeah, and whether to have an inspired life meant to have a dangerous life. Yeah, and that might, your mileage on that may vary as much as your mileage may vary on the voice that's telling you the story. Um, Something that we struggle with often is being into something at the beginning and then slowly that, that sinking feeling as your interest wanes as you realize that the storyteller doesn't share your interest, that they're telling you a very different story than the one you thought you signed up for. And if you're out on that voice, then you're probably going to be out on the show um, from there. So we definitely, I mean, I appreciate, like Chris said, I appreciate an honest accounting and and the question, but you don't have to like stuff. Yeah, um, for sure. And, and it might not be for everyone. And there were flaws in Killing Eve, but I continue to think of it as just truly this year, particularly this year, which has been a really down year for television, a really engaging, really thrilling, really surprising, and and I got to say, deeply entertaining show. Yeah, um, I had a great time watching it, which I don't say about a lot. Some of shows are homework, anymore. and this one isn't. Yeah. Uh, one question, one more question before we go to a break here. BS Tape wants to know what are two to th- two to three of the most popular. I can't believe you guys aren't watching. There's only one shows, and you've gotten this request for the last few years. And is there ever a chance they'll revisit them? Say it. The say, Expanse. Say the name. It's the Expanse. It's by, the Expanse. It's by far the Expanse. Both because I think it is in the zone of shows that we would talk about. Like it's shit. We scare, we care about space. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 yeah. It's out there, man. It's it's sci-fi. Um, and then I think when this show had it, it's it's on life support moment. I think there was like a push to be like, you guys, you guys got to talk about the expanse to keep it alive as if like you and I are going to change anybody's mind about that. <laughs> Doesn't matter because Bezos came through yeah. and dropped the bag. Yeah. And now they get to go into space on that Amazon money. And if anything, uh, it's moved to Amazon has kind of inspired me. If I, if I have the time, I would like to catch up with the show. If only because I'm curious to see what happens when they move on to Amazon and what Amazon can do for it in terms of its production. Is it going to have a either a jump in quality or a change in tone? Or much, scope. Much yeah. like right. your beloved Sneaky Pete did between the CBS pilot and the subsequent Amazon series. By the way, awful quiet. Awful quiet on I haven't S2 caught, I haven't caught up with Sneaky Pete yet. Sneaky Pete's? Yeah. You're just saving it for like a nice... Nice long weekend binge. <laughs> All right, I'm going to keep, keep your feet so to the yeah, fire that's on the same one for both of us, I think. I don't think there's anything that comes close to the amount of times we've been asked to talk about The Expanse. The, the other one that I carry with me, just like as, as a, it's a millstone, I, I really wish that I was conversant in these shows, are the stars shows, Survivor's Remorse and Power. People love- Shout out to Tanya. People love these shows. Oh, shout out to Tanya, who's always riding for them. But she's, She loves power. She's not alone. Yeah. Like, people- 
people Tanya even, who works at the ringer and who's a lovely lovely human being people are really into these shows they seem both they seem interesting compelling and I, I'd miss the boat and as Chris said this is this is the feeling and this is a something that I don't think is just a critic's complaint when when the ship is sailed and you don't have that binge time it's very hard to jump back on board all right we're gonna take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and we'll be right back to answer some more of your questions Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the best app for buying and selling tickets to sporting events, concerts, and more. For $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase on any game or sporting event, all you have to do is use promo code WATCH. Download the SeatGeek app or go right to SeatGeek.com. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by ExpressVPN. With all the recent news about data hacks and breaches, it's hard not to worry about digital privacy. And no matter what you do online, your mobile carrier and internet service provider track it all. Take back your privacy by using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN is the world's leading VPN provider that lets you securely use the internet without being tracked. It keeps your online activity private and anonymous while you browse, email, download, or stream. ExpressVPN is great for streaming content. You can even use it to watch the World Cup without a cable subscription. Their easy-to-use app encrypts all your internet data and hides your IP address, protecting your entire connection. ExpressVPN costs less than $7 a month and runs seamlessly in the background of a computer, phone, or tablet. ExpressVPN is perfect for the global television fan. Let me tell you why. What you can do is, let's say you're you're from here, you're from the States, you're traveling out of, out of the country, but you want to still watch US Netflix, you want to ch- tune into Hulu. ExpressVPN allows you to do that. And then you, conversely, if you want to watch stuff that's only on BBC iPlayer, you can use ExpressVPN to do that away, the same way. So take back your internet privacy today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash watch. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash watch for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash watch to learn more. You've got mail. All right, we are back, uh, Andy, with our mailbag questions. Let's just get right back into it. Um, Mike wants to know, how come Better Call Saul is not in any mainstream conversation? The show is close to flawless, and it's a sequel to one of the most beloved TV shows ever Made. We got it. I mean, we bring this up every so often. And in fact, I was thinking about that show this morning in the shower and kind of for the same reasons. We'll recount the story here. Chris and I, I think we weekly covered it the first season. Um, we kind of dribbed and drabbed the second season. And then we both just utterly slept on the third season. So much so that when the year ended and it was on a bunch of top 10 lists, I was flabbergasted. I'd just forgotten about it, which speaks to its role in the larger cultural conversation. But then when it hit Netflix, I took the time to revisit it. And I got to say, I loved watching it. And I usually don't feel this way about shows. I loved watching it in a Netflix binge. And I think it was because what I, I think one of the dominant reactions to Better Call Saul is just deep admiration and respect. That's not necessarily the same thing as passion. That is not engaging social media activity. That is not pins and needles every week with a large group of your friends or a large part of the country the way Breaking Bad was. But this show, as the questioner said, is expertly made and is designed like a precision auto. It's beautiful to watch, but it is more rewarding, I think, when you can watch the dominoes fall with more immediacy. Uh, This third season... The way that they paid off, and I won't, of course, won't spoil anything, but the way that they paid off that it, it just to call it a slow burn is an injustice to actually slow burns. This was like a slow singe 
of Jimmy's relationship with his brother Chuck is astonishing. And and yet it is almost not speaking the same language as every other TV show because that's a right it has earned from the pedigree that's behind it. It is it is we, we we've talked before about things being slow food TV. I mean, this is the the Trattoria in Italy that doesn't have a website and you drive up the winding road and when you get there they will make you the best pasta you've ever had, but you can't Instagram it. Yeah, like, right. That, that is my relationship to this show now. And I don't know if it would continue to exist if it wasn't, I mean, well, it wouldn't exist at all, of course, that Breaking Bad. If it Bad. wasn't attached to the Breaking Bad universe. I think the one thing I would say to Mike here is that Saul is a better, it's like a slow burn character driven show in an age where TV is increasingly becoming reminiscent of 80s movie culture, mm-hmm. by which I mean, I remember in the late 80s once sort of had like a bunch of these blockbusters like Terminator and Die Hard and then every movie afterwards was just described as a combination of those movies. So it was Die Hard on a plane or Die Hard on a submarine or Terminator but in space. And there's nothing, I don't think that that's, it's as drastic in television right now but more and more if I tell you that this is a show that's just about the fall from not even grace but just the fall into hell of a of a down-on-his-luck lawyer. Mm-hmm. That's not like a show you can get sold. You can sell it as part of the Breaking Bad expanded mm-hmm. universe made by the people who made Breaking Bad. But this kind of slowly-paced, character-driven show that I think we thought was going to be the hallmark of television coming out of the quote-unquote golden age is actually becoming more and more rare. Now, These rectifies yeah. your, your Breaking Bads, even to some extent things like Justified that were like, a procedural, but were essentially character-driven dramedies mm-hmm. are harder and harder to get off the ground because you have these networks that are looking to activate against, hey, is there a time travel element? Is there? Is it like an 80s homage? Is this, is this somehow got an element of life after death going on? Like, there's very few things in production that don't have a mystery or some sort of supernatural sci-fi element to it. I think it's also hamstrung by the fact um, that it falls squarely into a category of shows we were discussing when we were talking about what could be the next Game of Thrones, which is shows that have robbed themselves on to one major plank of their dramatic potential, which is that it's a prequel, and we kind of know. You know, we are filling in, deliciously filling in, the gaps of Mike Ehrmantraut's backstory. Mm-hmm. But we know what happened to him in that sedan. We know. And so uh, it, it just doesn't quite, um, it doesn't elevate to the same degree. That said, the car, that show does have one major card left to turn at the end, which is every season has begun with a glimpse of Saul's post-breaking, post-breaking bad. bad life. Right. And so the easy assumption to make is that it will end with some coda that will give us some finality or, or this vision of the character. Or it could be that this show could take a jump into a Breaking Bad sequel at some point. Exactly. With which, you know, your mileage on that may vary because a lot of the major characters of Breaking Bad won't be part of that. Or sequel. you don't want to know what happened to Jesse when he drove away. I, I hope that we don't find out. Um, Mother of Pod wants to know a common theme of your pod is that filmmakers and audiences are heading to TV and streaming as the cinema market fills with existing IP and loses original stories. What happens when the race for the next Game of Thrones causes IP saturation in television, as you noted with Halo? I guess we just touched on this a little bit with the Better Call Saul conversation. Um, it depends on whether or not there is an audience for things like 
succeed under in the future. Mm-hmm. Like if there is an audience, I mean, this is us is, is, is an example of something that is a, a relatively original concept and a relatively original, if, if not a well-worn, you know, television trope of like a family drama, but has like an added twist to it. It has that one extra bit. But also is just like a humanistic, approachable, lovable television show. The flip side of that is that- And it's a hit. And then there's Here and Now, which is, checks all those boxes. Alan Ball's show for HBO, which is a straightforward um, family drama Mm -hmm. that also had a little bit of a supernatural twist thrown on top of it. And it was a disaster. So I guess what I'm saying is that Game of Thrones is its own thing. Lord of the Rings is its own thing. Westworld is its own thing. Like there are different, I, there's different kinds of IP being mined for this. TV is still its own thing. You know, like yeah. this idea of like a family drama or a crime drama or there, there are certain things that they know work on television. And as long as there's an audience for that, I think we'll still see original stories. We'll still see twists on old stories in television. I don't think everything will be the, hey, we're going to TV with a new take on this old movie yet, but that time is not so far away. Yeah, it's just a question of what you do with it. I mean, there there are, we last week we talked about um, Glow as an example of a show that find found a way to spin something wholly entertaining, really to me, really exciting and challenging out of inherited IP um, and using the bones of, you know, ensemble sitcoms. Mm -hmm. But but even with those, uh, you know, knowing all of that, it's still, I find it hugely rewarding. So yeah, it's, it's absolutely possible. I, I wonder in, in, in the race, I wonder what it does to the race for more and more IP. What about something like Preacher? Um, which we've both been very into at times, I believe has returned for a third season mm-hmm. and I haven't even watched or noticed it. And it's just funny. I, I think that, forget the next Game of Thrones, I think that AMC felt very excited and very confident that it had something quite big for Game of Thronesy reasons. Not just because it was pre-existing IP that people had a certain fandom had a close relationship to, but because it had that same pre-existing spine that then Seth Rogen and, and Evan Goldberg and Sam Catlin and all the talented people who work on the show could just play with. Um, and the show, I still think, deserves attention because it has a really high quality cast and it has a sense of play that a lot of shows don't. But otherwise, it just seems to kind of be there, right? Am I am I misreading the, the situation? I think one of the issues preachers having is one of the issues I sometimes have when you describe the plot of a comic book line that I you, you want me to read, mm-hmm. and you'll be like, "So there's so death has come back, but he's actually just a marketing executive." You know, yeah. like there are the there, it's preacher is doing exactly what it always said it was going to do. It's just that they were hoping it was going to be The Walking Dead. Right, you know, exactly. It's preacher was always fucked up yeah. and weird, and like they were always gonna like if you gave it to Sam, uh, to to Sam Catlin and Evan Goldberg and Seth Seth Rogen, you were gonna get some like here and here's Hitler and mm-hmm. he's fighting the devil or mm-hmm. whatever. Like that's just like I can't explain that to anybody when they're like, what do what should I be watching right now? And I'm like, preacher. Here's why. Do you have ten minutes for me to explain this to you? Yeah, you know. And in some ways, that's what's holding back the expanse a little bit. I think the expanse's setup is pretty, pretty convoluted. It's kind of difficult to explain. Not that Game of Thrones isn't. 
But you can explain Game of Thrones as there's a lot of sex and these families are fighting. And it's basically it, like a sword and shields and dragons war. And, it's and, pretty cool. And also the the story around the story becomes part of the story, which yeah. is to say once that first season started to take off and people were watching it and talking about it and there was time to get on the train and it built and built, um, it, it's TBD whether that kind of audience growth, word of mouth, um, second screen excitement is still possible? Um, or is it is it that Game of Thrones was the last recipient of that kind of culture that, that boosted Breaking Bad and other shows in the previous era of TV? Or is Game of Thrones actually that magical unicorn who's probably is fucking its unicorn sister that <laughs> can still, that, sure. that, can, that can defy gravity in a way that other shows are still aspiring to do? Absolutely. Uh, Password is Taco asks, maybe Andy could explain why some IP ends up as TV shows and some winds up as movies. For example, always thought The Passage would have been a movie because of how CGI heavy the flyers would have had to have been to be believable, mm-hmm. while World War Z would work best as, a, as TV because of its episodic vignette nature. Uh, I think we've talked before about yeah. the dream for World War Z would be the Ken Burns mockumentary version of it. Yeah. Um, the Passage... It's very interesting that they are making this as a television show because I can't tell how much they are going to um, be poker-faced about the passage, about what happens in the passage. Mm -hmm. Like Game of Thrones, I think like Walking Dead, there are some late in the book and then you would assume late in maybe the second season twists Mm -hmm. in the passage that I think are crucial to the story. And I don't know if Fox has the time to have a first season be about the prologue of the book. No, I I think... think the misfire is that it's on Fox, frankly. I mean, I still, I still hold out hope. Oh, not hope anymore. It's, it's happened. But, you know, if this was an FX thing, it, it could be great. And I think that's one that should have been a TV show, not a movie. But to answer the question, what it really comes down to is what powerful people are excited about it. You know, that, that's, really, yep. that's really what it is. I mean, a, a prestigious producer who gobbles up something like a, like a Scott Rudin or something, uh, they look to the movies. You know, they want to make... Or, or Jerry Bruckheimer, whatever. Like they, they, if they get the property, they look to the movies first. That's the business they know. That's you know they look for global opportunity. There's a lot of money to be made, big stars to attach. That's the world that they exist in. The thing about World War Z is that yeah, there are a hundred different versions of what it could be. But Brad Pitt, one of the world's remaining superstars, got interested in it or got excited about it, or his people grabbed it for him and got excited about it and pitched it as a vehicle for him to do the thing that his handlers thought would be good for him to do, which would be a big action movie at this point in his career. So that's what it became. It, for as much as we've talked about how the business has changed and there are all these different avenues to express yourself and to put things on the screen, it is still a power-driven, star-driven industry. Yeah. And if someone really big and fancy grabs it, they're going to do their big and fancy thing with it. And if it trickles down to the peons, then... Maybe it'll be something more interesting. All right, let's wrap up with this one from Chauncey Talese. What is Andy's YouTube conspiracy theory? Aside from REM, what other major pop culture figures or works have left no cultural footprint? I, there's a reason why we didn't do the YouTube conspiracy theory. Oh, okay, forget it. No, 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 people have been asking about it. It's fine. Okay. I appreciate, first of all, as someone who is a fan of like who was shooting on the, from the other outrigger on Lost, like mm-hmm. unanswered questions in long-running dramas are crucial. So- for the record, we did record a long thing where I explained my YouTube Octung Baby conspiracy theory about what that album really tracks. And then we deleted it out of respect for the adults involved. So I think the mystery will have to remain until we do a live show or something and okay. there are no tapes and, no, and libel laws have changed. That said, 
What an interesting question. To recap, we've said this before. I think we said it with Bill once on a podcast. Growing up, REM was a huge, huge, huge presence in our lives. I mean, mm-hmm. REM was my first favorite, favorite band. I they loved them more than anything. They ushered in the alternative rock movement of the 90s. And briefly, bizarrely, became the biggest band in the world for a two or three year spell. Yeah. Not just the most influential and respected band, which they had been. Um, a few years, you know, two decades later, although they broke up, you know, in 20, they broke up this decade. Uh I see no evidence of their existence yeah. in pop culture whatsoever. The style of music, their politics, their approach to the media, to to public image, I don't see it. I would I I hate to say this because I, I feel like I'm I'm I don't mean this to sound as uh incendiary as it yeah. does. I think they probably have more in common with the B-52s than you two at this point. Wow. Like in terms of their it's like a band that people deeply love. Yeah. That obviously had a huge cultural impact. I'm not saying they didn't. But now, you just, I don't know that a single person under the age of 30 at the ringer is where you are No, and, and, and why would they? And, and what's crazy is like this band that meant so much to so many people, I guess, are, are just- Do you wait- say wow because you think I'm wrong? Or do you no, wow because you think that's ether? They're just waiting for their crucial sink and ladybird too to suddenly get the convo going yeah, again, right, you know? I right. mean, it, it is a generational thing, no doubt. And there are bands like, you know, who I, whom I love personally and professionally and musically, like Death Cab for Cutie, who continue to think of R.E.M. as a, as a foundational... Um, there are people who think of them like the Beatles. I'm not saying that nobody likes them yeah, like that. But, yeah, but in terms of young people and fandom, right. So it, it, it's... I, I can't combat your ether... I would just say that it's not it, supposed to be either. Like I'm trying to diss them. No, I'm it, saying like I just kind of feel that way. I, I guess what I feel. There's no in, REM serious channel. What I feel in retrospect is totally baffled that they were the biggest band in the world sure. at all. Um, I, I remember being old enough to think that it was crazy that this college rock band that I liked when I was 12 was suddenly a big deal. But it also felt like validating in some way. And now it just feels like what a weird aberration the 90s were. But I think I think of that in a lot of aspects of life. Anyway, the question was what other major pop cultural figures have left no cultural footprint? I don't have a specific answer about footprint. I'm curious if you do. What this made me think of is that I don't see another thing that came from the 90s that we both love and continue to love are the works of Paul Thomas Anderson as a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. Who's Paul Thomas Anderson now? And what I mean is Paul Thomas Anderson was like a a snotty, middle fingers up, I'm going to show you how to make movies and I am this overflowing cultural stew of my influences and I love things passionately and I love them hard and I love them intensely. And he wrote and he directed and he cared a lot and matured into, and again, thanks to the deep pockets of Megan Ellison and Annapurna, has continued to be able to make every few years heavy, profound, fascinating, challenging works that he is writing and directing and he's matured. I don't know if that path for a filmmaker exists anymore. And I'm very curious your thoughts as, well, A, if I'm right, but B, why that is. Because I'm thinking of people who I am, if not equally excited about, certainly excited about, people like Issa Rae, who writes and stars and directs, or Joe Swanberg, who make, you know, he would hate the term, but I guess mumblecore movies, but now is making, has settled in to continuing to work frequently um, and make these Netflix projects like Easy or uh, Win It All. Mm-hmm. Um, is the have the delivery system changed? Has ambition changed? I think people get pushed to genre. Right. So that's I think the other genre is a, is reliable work. 
you'll see somebody like Jeremy Saulnier, who I think is a deeply exciting filmmaker. Okay. But made two features and then signed on to make True Detective season three and then- And then signed off. And then signed off. There are people like the Safdie brothers who made two really exciting features, Heaven Knows What and Good Time, but are now rumored, they, they have one more crime film coming with Adam Sandler, uh, but about uh, the Diamond District in New York. Crazy. But then are rumored to be making a 48 Hours remake with Gerard Carmichael. Yeah. Um, so that, that idea that you could make Heart 8 and Boogie Nights and Magnolia and develop your own world is increasingly small. I think if, you know, we don't associate the same heaviness with her, but I think that Greta Gerwig has an opportunity to do that. She's been around mm. for a very long time. She's worked in Mumblecore movies. She was written, uh, co-written Noah Baumbach movies, and then she made her first feature and clearly is like, I want to make more movies in the world of Sacramento mm -hmm. in the same way that Paul Thomas Anderson was interested in the Valley mm -hmm. and interested in exploring the lives of these people who are outside of the glitz and glamour of Los Angeles. And then has since become more of a historical, you know, historical filmmaker with the master and there will be blood. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know that there is that path to being the great unifying Tarantino Paul Thomas Anderson O'Tour right now. It, it just, I think that the the delivery systems have changed, the culture has changed, certainly, but it is odd to me, and I would love pushback on this and examples because there are exciting young filmmakers, certainly, and ones that we I, I definitely don't know about, but the, 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 the easy acquiescence of um, genre or of large-scale production, you know, the sort of, stunted fanboy generation, you know, who one generation later, because Tarantino and Paul Thomas Anderson are older than us mm -hmm. and grew up on some 70s cinema and the popcorn fun of the 80s, no question. But I don't think they hold up the certain Spielberg films, like the first run of Spielberg films and George Lucas films as the holy text. No, I think that they were, they were probably a little more punkish. I think that they yeah, are and, either into... Uh, B movies or Jonathan Demi movies as that that time period should be valued for those movies rather than um, let's remake and, Goonies. And, and, and I just think there's something and the desire to remake Goonies, whether it's Colin Trevorrow's filmography or Stranger Things, which is you mm -hmm. know a project I have time for. Sure, but that that almost the religious aspect of filmmaking sure. I think has has neutered has neutered the, the, some of that punk rock spark and excitement that we saw in the 90s. And so it's a different answer to the question because obviously we're talking about Paul Thomas. I said Paul Thomas Anderson. You're right to say Tarantino. Both these people are still working and working at very high level and people are excited about them. So their cultural footprint exists in that their feet are still walking, but I don't know who's walking behind them. Yeah. Uh, let's wrap it up there. That was fun. All right. We'll, Great do, we'll be Thanks, back everybody. on Thursday to talk Succession. Sharp Objects and Glow, the episodes four through six. Yep. Uh, have a great week. Have a great first half of your week, Baranskis. We'll see you before the week's over. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Hotel Tonight. If you love to score amazing deals at incredible hotels, you'll love Hotel Tonight. 
Hotel Tonight partners with hotels to help them sell their unsold rooms, helping you find sweet deals at cool, top-rated hotels. Even though their name is Hotel Tonight, you can also book in advance for spontaneous weekend getaways, staycations, three-day weekends, road trips, business bookings, and more. And it's easy. Book hotels in 10 seconds, just three taps and a swipe. Get the Hotel Tonight app now to start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels. That's Hotel Tonight, the only booking app you need. Hey guys, while I have you here and before I let you go, I want you to go to the ringer.com slash shop where you can find the watch t-shirts. It's our first ever official t-shirts. You may have possibly made your own at home for that. We thank you. But these are the first official ones. They say great job, Baranski on the front and the watch on the back. They come in a cool aqua blue. You can cop that. You can cop t-shirts for tons of other Ringer podcasts like the, like Binge Mode has really nice gear. Uh, there's also stickers available. So go to the ringer.com slash shop to get all your Ringer merch for summer. <laughs> 